0: What's happening, everybody? Welcome back to the Ranching Reboot Podcast for our first episode of 2023. I'm your host, Red Hills Rancher, and this is episode number 96. Despite what I said in the last episode, Joel Salatin will not be appearing today due to, well, let's just call it a scheduling malfunction. This episode is sponsored by our amazing patrons on patreon.com forward slash Red Hills Rancher. If you'd like to show your support for the podcast, check the link in the show notes. If you need more Ranching Reboot content in your life, be sure to check out my YouTube channel. I've been dropping all the archived episodes that we've built up over the last year and a half. They're all on YouTube, and new one releases every day. I just wanted to take a moment to remind you about my Discord server. Discord is a great place to network and chat off of social media. We offer a welcoming and inclusive community where you can connect with like-minded individuals, share your interest, and participate in discussions. If you'd like to come join the fun and discussions on Discord and see what you're missing out on, drop by the Ranching Reboot Paddock, our private Facebook group. Check there for a link, or if you're having trouble with that, email me at redhillsrancher.com with Discord in a subject line, and I will email you a link. This episode also sponsored by Bobo Links from Blue Nest Beef. Bobo Links are my new favorite meat snack. Simple and clean ingredients, gluten-free, no grains, hormones, or antibiotics, or dyes. Naturally preserved by fermentation, no nitrates, corn syrup, or liquid smoke. Bobo links are tangy and delicious, individually wrapped for maximum freshness. I keep one in my pocket for a healthy midday snack while I'm on the ranch. Try Bobo links today. Check the show notes for a link and use the code BOBO REBOOT for ten dollars off your first package. All right, crew. I need to come clean. For the last two years, I've been taking grass-fed beef organ supplements. A few months ago, I reached out to several different brands, and I'm pleased to announce that I found a brand that I can align with. Introducing OneEarthHealth.com, grass-fed and finished beef organ supplements. Look, we all know that the liver is one of the most nutrient-dense foods available. Packed with iron and B vitamins, it's a great source of choline and folate. Sourced from grass-fed and finished cattle with no fillers. I take the beef liver blend and the organs blend, which includes spleen, pancreas, kidney, heart, and yeah, a little more liver. I take them every day, and I feel great, except when I forget. Then I notice I have less energy and less focus. Check them out. Go to www.oneearthhealth.com forward slash Brian Alexander or click the link in the show notes. Well, Damian Mason, welcome to Ranching Reboot. It's good to have you here. Um, got maybe a little bit of a short episode today because we are both short on time. So let's dive into it. Give us the elevator speech. Um, Give us your elevator speech.
1: I don't have an elevator speech. People always say that, especially in ag. Um, I don't like talking to people on elevators, nor do people like to be talked to on elevators. So I always found it funny. Give us your elevator speech. My elevator speech is I awkwardly look at the number on the little thing when it tells you what floor you're getting to um, so that I get to the correct floor. Um, If you mean give you 20 seconds about Damian Mason... I'm a farm boy from Indiana, was raised on a dairy farm, conventional normal dairy farm of its era, it would now look very quaint, and antiquated, frankly, because things have evolved so much with automation and consolidation in the dairy industry. But we milked 60 cows, farmed about five or 600 acres, most of it was rented. My grandfather came to this country and milked cows as a herdsman. Um, so I'm a second generation and um, very much that, uh, that hardworking farm kid uh, background went to Purdue, have a degree in agricultural economics, worked in corporate America for a couple of years, quit my job and pursued political comedy, turned political comedy into my business starting in 1994. Uh, ran with that pretty strong until the early mid-2000s and then made the big switch to becoming, instead of a political comedy guy, being an ag guy who's funny. And then increasingly over the time, uh, people come up and say, hey, you're really funny, but you actually know stuff about this. Said, well, yeah, I know stuff about this. I read the Wall Street every day. I travel. I've uh, created my own business. So they said, can you make more business points? So over the years, um, I sort of became known as the keynote speaker for business and agriculture. That's what we do a lot of. I speak at conferences. I've written two books. If you're listening and not viewing, you can look over my shoulders here. are Two of my most recent books, Do Business Better, which is geared to uh, small biz and uh, self-employed entrepreneur types. And another book called Food Fear, which probably is mistitled. It should just be called The Past, Present, and Future of American Agriculture. Um, So that's um, what those are all about. I produce the Business of Agriculture podcast. I have been doing that for over five years. I have a tremendous following and listenership and even sponsors there. And I also, on the side, I produce content for a group called Extreme Ag, which is a group of forward-thinking, mostly row crop, broad-acre, uh, large acreage farm uh, farmers, and we do a lot of product trials, and uh, we produce content about what the trials are, the practices, the new the new methods we're doing, and all that. So I keep pretty busy in ag, <clears throat> and I travel all over. I live half the time at my farm in Indiana, and I live half the time in Arizona because I hate winter. And I'm coming to you from my my winter home right now in Arizona, which is actually my winter office. Uh, people always get that wrong by the way brian oh man you got there in arizona for the winter you missed a bad winter and my wife says do these people not keep up with your social media feed you were in des moines and mankato minnesota then from there you were in saskatoon how the hell do they think you've missed out on any winter i'm like yeah i do speaking engagements at business meetings for ag which of course takes me all over to the cold country
0: and you know us ag producers we like to have a lot of meetings when it's you know cold and crappy out so we're not out not feeling the pressure to be outside working and we don't mind being cooped up in a conference room or an office
1: yeah and you know a lot of uh, audiences when you say you speak at ag conferences again i live half the year in arizona out here they think you speak at ag conferences you go and do farmer meetings i'd say that one-fifth of my audiences are farmers or ranchers because there's so much ancillary industry as you know uh pharmaceutical calf medicine uh biological crop inputs fertilizer feed seed uh finance crop insurance machinery I mean processing food processing distribution so I get around uh, the table of agriculture pretty well as you might say from from cranberries to you know ethanol
0: very cool very cool so you've probably seen a lot of the corporatization and and centralization of ag happen over your career
1: yeah well i mean it's kind of interesting being a political comedian brian means to be i always say you start with observation i was an observant kid um i've been paying attention for a long time you know i used to read like time magazine or watch uh media even when i was a kid and so i've been doing this for a long while whether it's about current events political stuff or agriculture, the industry that you and I both work in and were raised around. Um, there's this perception that, oh, God, things are so different today than they've always been. Well, th- yeah, technologically, yes. Uh, right now, a guy is doing the Twitter uh, in a tractor that's driving itself and uh, doing the work that four tractors would have been required to do 60 years ago. Okay, that's change, yes. But, uh, you know, like consolidation you said you used the word corporatization that's not something that's new today it's not something that's new last year you know on my book i talk about it i think the number is about eight million it's six and a half or eight million i can look it up right now and i will when you're um, when we when we have a pause here but i talk about consolidation because this whole thing of well you know them great big corporate farmers now didn't used to be that way when we've been getting bigger for since like the pilgrims got off the boat you you know you got better at growing corn so you did two acres and all of a sudden you could do 20 acres and then the guy down the road said i'm shitty at growing corn so you know what you grow corn on my field and i'll go over here and work in 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 the in the in the in the place of the paddle wheel where they grind the corn that's kind of how the evolution of all of society has happened so have I witnessed the corporatization or consolidation? I think might be a more accurate um, thing. Yeah, but then we all have, and it's been going on for a long time. It's it's lamented, it is, um, complained about, it is, um, resented. But I'm not sure a that it's anything new. You know, we had like eight million farms in America in the 1930s, and today there are two million farms. Um, it didn't happen because some evil corporate titan came around and said, Sell me your farm ground or I'm gonna uh sick my private security guards on you. It happened because a lot of people were out there not doing very well, right? <laughs> you know, this <there's, laughs> you know, there's nostalgia for the old days, Brian. It's like, okay, have you seen the have you read the grapes of wrath? Have you studied what the farm economics of the 1930s looked like? So to say that we lost a whole bunch of farms during that time because of um, some evil and i'm not in any way like oh mr rah-rah corporate i'm just saying it's kind of happened from a, an evolution of economics and some of it i'm not sure that you would argue against um, i talk about that in my book as well when you say the good old days you know the cows had brucellosis uh, the, 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 the child infant mortality rate in rural America, 50, 70 years ago was atrocious. I mean, almost enough to make you cry. So let's not pretend that the good old days were always so good. And I, um, I guess I'll close it out on this and I, we can get back to the corporate part and the economics, which is one of my strong suits. My father <clears throat> told you was a herdsman's son. Uh, he broke his arm when he was an eight year old boy. And got a compound fracture. Compound fracture, poor kid, out in rural America. You know, your dad's a herdsman milking cows for people. You ain't got a lot of money. This is before penicillin. It's the 1930s. They stuck a cast on his arm and got gangrene. They amputated it at the elbow. Came in the next day, still smelled gangrene. The doctor smelled a gangrene. and said, ah, shit, Harold, we didn't get it all. And then went and cut his arm off a second time. I used that barbaric uh, illustration about my father's little boy to point out my dad didn't go on and on about how good the good old days were. When you think of some of the things that happened back in that era, we still had immigrants doing the labor. They were still poor, and you're talking about the 1930s here, Uh and to boot, we had kids that Got a broken arm, and all of a sudden lost her arm, and spent seventy years without a left arm on account of it. So let's be careful about how today things are terrible, and somehow things were good back then. I guess is the illustration I'd like to use.
0: And I, and I totally respect that. You know, we have made some very significant technological advances. You know, but some of those I, I, I kind of question. Um, you know, a great example of you know, getting get an arm injury and having to have amputations. Would that have happened in, in 1950 and 1980 in 2010? Yeah, probably not because we know, we know more things. We have better access to information. We have better access to medical care. But what we also have access to is we also have access to a lot of things that we don't understand, which, I'm, and I'm thinking of like some of these, um, some of these chemical weapons that we've been using to farm with, you know, insecticides, herbicides, pesticides over the years. Um, And we can, we can go back like DDT. We remember DDT, right? We had to quit using DDT because we almost extincted the, uh, the California condor and it was hurting bald eagles. And it seems like we could have learned a lesson there about mass use of, of pesticides and herbicides and what they did down the food, you know, on down the food chain. Um and that was a tangent I really didn't intend to chase. So, going
1: <laughs> Well, you told me we were going before you hit the record button you said we're going to cover demographics, inflation, land access and the fallacy you feed the world and then you went off on DDT and you and I are at absolute polar opposite ends on that one because I can point out the National Science Foundation or National Academy of Sciences as it were stated at one point that they believed that DDT an overused insecticide, to your point, overused insecticide that did have a, well, it was amazingly effective, was why it was so overused, and it was incredibly affordable. Uh, National Academy of Sciences says that worldwide, they think that DDT saved 500 million lives from things like dengue and malaria. Um, DDT was not banned in fact, I'm I've got a whole episode of the Business of Agriculture podcast devoted to the DDT comparison to climate change and the hysteria crisis perpetuation that is not really based in science or fact. So, the DDT has some harmful effects. Well, first off, we overused it, and same with glyphosate. You could say that. I mean, you're you're probably on the same page as that. Glyphosate, tremendously effective, but way overused. It's the world's most used herbicide. Why? It's cheap and it's generally effective. It's been overused, and now we have all sorts of glyphosate-tolerant, uh, you know, plants, uh, weeds. <clears throat> but on the DDT front, um, here's the tough part. Um, they used the eagle. The activist groups used the eagle, the American symbol, uh, and said that eagles are going to go extinct because of DDT, and that actually wasn't really true. Big thing is that's a kind of a bigger thing here brian about activism versus science and reality and this would be of all things a time to talk about that with all the COVID and, and whatnot and some of the findings that we're going with there but we don't need to get into that that whole ship big thing i think you're pointing out there is we've got progress um And you're going to say probably maybe what I think maybe you're saying there is is progress always good or or do we deem things um, advances that also might have a few um, some of the advances come along with a a negative?
0: I'll tie it in. okay? so as, as farms get bigger, corporate highs and, you know, we have these large for profit corporations that you know, fund research projects, fund research centers at universities that fund lobbyists that take out ads in print magazines and on TV, talking about how great the chemicals they're developing are for the world. And the problem I get to is corporate corporations are run basically to generate a profit. Yep. And that's their mission. And Everything else comes secondary to that environmental effects, human effects, everything kind of comes secondary to that, you know, the holy altar of corporate profits. And I'm not saying that's evil because we need a certain amount of that, you know, to maybe drive progress in the world. Right. But when we get to a point where, you know, it's to these companies benefit, you know, they do the math and they say, Hey, yeah, there's some negative effects from this, but we can make Billions of dollars before anybody finds out about it. Hmm. And I I don't want to say anything like, you know anything specific do you understand what I'm saying
1: do I understand what you're saying um I have been uh yelled at for three years that I'm anti-science by people that certain to
0: lean a certain way
1: politically because of my stance against the covid Crusaders that want to shut down the economy or worse yet some of them the hard left started saying that we should go we should have government agents go door to door and forcibly vaccinate these these people who are too ignorant to understand science and I said, First off, do you realize how how similar you are to very, very bad things that have happened in the last couple hundred years historically? Do you have any comprehension of how you just sounded like the, I, the Nazi, the Nazi, uh, the Nazi forces, etc.? The Gestapo, for God's sakes, the brown shirts. But six anyway,
0: before that, they were screaming that Trump was a Nazi, Trump was a Nazi, Trump was a Nazi, and then oh, COVID happens. Oh, now we need to go door to door, give everybody vaccines. Like, um, You don't understand what you sound like right now.
1: No, they don't know history. So anyway, to that point, Pfizer, uh, Pfizer's, I think the number is 28 billion that they made just off of the second round of the booster. So, and Pfizer also has pushed now for protections and has it so that they cannot be sued for anything, any, any side effects that should come about because of it. So what you're saying, and and this is probably your listener saying, what the hell's happened here, Damon? You just were on this rant about the benefits of DDT, and now you're telling me the e of Pfizer. I'm telling you that first off, DDT, and there's a couple of big differences here, Brian. DDT was first come across, discovered, formulated in the late 1800s. It actually then got redone in 1939 or 37, I think it was. Anyway, the point is, it was before, right before World War II. Uh, A Swiss chemist is out there piddling around with it, and he finds it's insecticidal properties because it was not developed for that originally. And then it was found to be one of the most amazing insecticides that you've ever imagined. Better than the stuff you're spraying out of your raid can, uh, you know, at home. And it was very inexpensive and easily made. So that's why it became so good. And you're talking, and this is I talk about it in in my uh, ag book. We lost more Marines in the South Pacific to malaria. Then we lost to Japanese bullets. So the United States military began using DDT. Uh, Another case to be made. DDT then had a pretty long track record. And, you know, it had been in use since the 30s. It didn't get banned until the 70s. And it was, again, all because of activism. Rachel, uh, what's her name? Rachel Carson and Silent Spring, the book. So using that example, this COVID vaccine, which is really not, It's not a vaccine. It's experimental
0: gene therapy.
1: Experimental gene therapy was tossed together in fast fashion to respond to a media-perpetuated and politically-perpetuated crisis that the truth is uh, didn't have almost any 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 deadly effect, any fatal effect on anyone that was healthy or young. Right? It was the the children, people your age, my age. If you were morbidly obese, had diabetic diabetes, and three other uh, you know, contributing causes to death or you're quite old. so anyway uh and you're not allowed to say that because uh you know this this the 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 group that is all uh, the covid Crusaders but I guess my point is I can question the Pfizer thing all day long because I can follow the money. you can't do that with DDT. in fact it was it was yes it was was it large chemicals that made it Yes I'm sorry, chemical companies yeah the the Seba of the world back in the day if you're old enough to even remember some of these uh you know uh companies but it was so cheap it was not very profitable. Uh in fact when DDT was banned in the United States the chemical companies here weren't that upset because they didn't hardly make anything manufacturing it anyhow, right? It's kind of like it, it had moved on. You can't say that about the Pfizer vaccine which is proprietary just to them, right? It's not and and also it was thrown together in about 3 months whereas the DDT thing had a track record going back to the 1800s. Um I would say another thing. Um, you can't tell me that Pfizer's drug has saved 500 million lives in the third world the way the DDT did, according to the National Academy of Sciences. You know that, Brian, there's an interesting stat. We used to lose some years in the American Southeast. And you're talking going back to the 40s, 30s, 50s. Remember, the American Southeast was not the new South like it is now. It was It was damn poor, right? I mean, right. all the, the, and we still have the poverty levels of the Mississippis and the Alabamas and, you know, Georgia, West Virginia, et cetera, the Southeast, but it was worse back then. We used to lose some years, a million people would die of malaria in the, in the United States. Um, after world war two, the government embarked on a huge DDT mosquito eradication uh, plan Um, by 1952, there were three cases of malaria in the whole United States of America. So going from like losing a million Americans to malaria to three cases in the whole country. So I can make that case about DDT. I can't do that for the Pfizer thing, because as you said, it's not even really a vaccine. It was rushed, to say the least. And it was politically motivated. And it was obviously uh, pushed through a regulatory process that never would stand up to scrutiny if it was truly the science. So, anyway.
0: Yeah, my Dr. Friends tell me that, uh, aspirin, like there's no way that aspirin would be approved as a drug today during the current, you know, under the current FDA guidelines that we couldn't have aspirin because nobody can tell you how it works. <laughs> and I asked him, I said, Jeff, isn't that true for pretty much most medicines? And he goes, well, yeah, we really don't know how they work. We just kind of know mostly what they do most of the time, <laughs> That's kind of a little bit scary It. Maybe it's a little bit frightening to figure out, you know, to to see, maybe these scientists don't really know what they think they know. And well, let me tell you, man. Go ahead. You you said something, you said something about following the money, about you know, with with the research, with the Pfizer thing, and you know, like it, to kind of get away from from COVID. Uh, that follow the money, I think, is really applicable if we're going to talk about like the Great Sugar Lie. And I think, to some extent, I think the follow of the money. That to me says that there's there's science, quote science and research being bought. And I wonder, you know, just like they're saying, oh, the you know COVID vaccine is safe. This is safe. This is safe. Well, who says it's safe? Mm-hmm. Your study that's paid for by your company said it was safe. Mm-hmm. I w- where. Where's the independent verification? Where's it? It's really fishy that you know, trust us, we say it's safe because our research says it's safe. But if it's not, you can't ever sue us because we're legally protected from liability.
1: Yeah. And Brian, you're missing out on the other part of it. If you then imagine, imagine, uh, and Okay, maybe your listeners are not old enough to remember, you know, like Jim Jones, the Guyana tragedy, where he took uh, well, you know, thousand or so of his of his devout cult followers to a third world country, and then uh, they and got them all to commit mass suicide. And you look back and say, like, "Oh, those people are crazy! How would anybody believe that?" And and you just you can just hear that you can hear the afterthought now. Well, they were drinking the that's where drinking. By the way, dear listener, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, because Brian's nodding his head, he does <laughs> Google. Maybe don't use Google. Use a different use a a different search engine that might actually not filter what you're allowed to see. Jim Jones, Guyana tragedy, drink a Kool-Aid. That's where it all came from. And so when some of us that are more skeptical, that are more well-read, that have this thing called critical thinking capacity, started looking at this COVID thing and said, good God, I've seen this before. And it becomes this thing that And I read an article, and it was pretty in-depth about the psychology of humans. And we are, it's a tribal thing. It is very much a tribal thing. It's better to be in the group for survival purposes than to go against the group and then be outcast because you get eaten by a saber tooth tiger. Okay, so it's better just to go along with the group. And who is the group led by? Is it the smartest scientist? Generally, not. It's the person that can command an audience, who might be an alpha male or an alpha female, who can speak articulately, articulately, and who also is not against doing whatever it takes to be the leader. And that might be lie, deceit, uh, you know, be deceitful, whatever those things are. And if you start looking at the humans as a tribe and looking at us being out there, and it's, it's us, a fire, and a saber-toothed tiger out there in the wilderness. The point is the average human would rather be in the group and wrong than be outcast from the group and be right. It takes a lot of balls and backbone and fortitude and, and I mean, and, and thick skin, to say the least, to go against the narrative. And that is exactly what you got to do. So when you start following this money, Brian, now, I know this is an agricultural podcast, but it doesn't matter. You know, I've used the DDT thing. It took balls and backbones for me to stand up to you on your podcast that you invited me on to tell you I disagree with you about DDT. And I believe that some of those stats that you actually referenced about the bald eagle are actually uh, overstated by cause groups. And the thing is, that's what does not happen. There's no disagreement because I'm terrified of being outcast. I would rather be in the group. And you know what? The whole COVID thing or or GMOs or climate crisis. I can bring up any one of these that have a tinge of science and say, it's like the worst element of us being at grade school. Imagine you and I are at the grade school on the playground and the boy's picking on you because you're bald and have a beard and you smell like cow shit. And so I think it's funny to go ahead and jeer you also. And then seven other people that are not as tough. They're not as, they're kind of weak. Well, are they going to come over and pick uh, stick up for the kid that smells like cow crap and is bald and has a beard? No, you know, they're going to jump in on the jeers. That is exactly what has happened. So when you talk about whether it's the science, I'm—I cringe anymore now. When I have—I I don't even cringe. I, I did at first. Now it's more like, oh god, this again. The science. You're a denier. When that becomes this thing, you can just see. Just imagine you're on that playground, and imagine that I'm the kid that smells like cow shit but it's because I said, no, I'm questioning this. I disagree with uh, Pope Fauci, or I don't know that you're right about this genetically modified organism. Or I'll tell you what, DDT had a lot of positive attributes globally in terms of its uh, benefit. It takes a lot of balls and backbone to be that person. There's not a lot of people on that playground that come over and say, I want to see things from that perspective. So that's what you're talking about. And so to pretend that scientists and follow the science are first off we'll get to the money part but first off to pretend that they're not humans is a is a big huge flaw and i started saying this way back with the covid craziness and i said these doctors are just really highly educated practitioners they they don't get taught critical thinking they get taught when a person comes into the hospital and uh, you know they're they're they've got an infection on their foot here's what you do Uh, you know they they're not usually out there on the front edge of hey here's this really crazy idea this critical thinking thing no they're just essentially really what seven years of highly practiced
0: practicing
1: that's what they do so when it says that and i haven't gotten into the money part but i've talked a lot you're the one supposed to be talking all the time
0: (laughs) no i i generally don't talk a whole lot i just try to ask a few questions and uh and let it run um so yeah following the money
1: are we still getting along even though i disagree with you
0: oh man you can disagree with me all you want like i had uh i had a really great episode last summer with don Schiffle being the head of the national Cattlemen's beef association and let's just say that we don't see eye to eye on much at all and that i think
1: was- they, i think that they might be the most useless organization on the planet in terms of what they get paid and what they allegedly do with the money they get paid. And that's a bigger symptom of the checkoff programs, which some of them are very effective. The pork is the best checkoff program I have ever worked with, and I've worked with them a whole bunch. Dairy and beef, mm, arguably the two worst and biggest bureaucratic waste of money going.
0: Yeah, and, and follow the money. If you really want to go down a rabbit hole, like follow the money where your checkoff dollars go and what they actually do, and try to get some answers from those people. It's it, it's a scam. To me, I see I see I see the beef checkoff as a scam in order to line the pockets of the big packers and the few feeders that have the sweetheart deals. You you're, know, I, also
1: forget, you're also forgetting the number of the number of employees checkoff programs like Beef and Dairy become little governments of themselves. Yes. Once you get hired, you never ever get fired. Uh, The money rolls in just like taxation every day. uh, And the people that are giving you their money have no choice but to give you the money. And then they love to say, yeah, but you have a voice in this. We appointed this rancher out here to be on our board. Okay, so what that really means is, they take them to Denver once a year, buy a steak dinner, and play them with drinks. Say, "Look at what our beef program is doing for you. We're beef checkoff," and they say, "Yeah, great. Give me another drink." Uh, it's it's uh, anyway story for another day. Waste of money. I would do everything I could if I were a beef producer to check to get out of the to check out of the checkoff. And in fact, I did. When I was a thirteen-year beef producer, uh, I sold all my stuff privately.
0: And that's the move that I'm going to like. I think that there's so much wrong with the beef markets and the commodity markets as they exist. And let's face it, they're they're basically too big to fail. I don't think the government is going to come in and break up the big four packers or mandate that they divest to increase competition in the marketplace. That's never happening, right? JBS, Cargill. Well,
1: no, the government just, just threw a bunch of money at what was supposed to then be grants to, to create small-scale small uh, packers and processors
0: well those are just going to be plants that the big guys can come up and buy at 10 cents on the dollar in the next 10 years when they create another black swan event down the line to, to manipulate the price of beef like i
1: don't disagree I, And there's I, another I, part of it um i had somebody on here that was uh on my podcast that's a huge and they, they, they look at meat markets all the day and the amount of money that was going to be tossed at this it was going to it would have added like three wow. percent of capacity or some ungodly amount of small i mean you it does it, it, it's a drop in the ocean is what i'm saying hey let's go, go back to the bigger thing there about the money okay that's what you're talking about and i i gave the example of the you know the cave people the tribe they'd rather just go along go along with the group and be wrong versus being outcast where you might get eaten by a saber-toothed tiger i think the better people understand my illustration or hear it It might make sense then about a whole bunch of stuff. And then you even have to do some uh, soul searching. How many times have you been wrong and you've been jeering? You've been jeering the person that actually went against convention convention, and only because it was easier for you to go along with the group. It becomes very much like bullying and and, uh, group bullying and all that. So anyway, don't think for a second that those scientists... Now, we're talking about just someone that has maybe a a master's degree or a PhD in whatever, biology, chemistry, name it. And then gets employed probably by a corporation, maybe by a university. And then to stay employed, you've got to do some research, let's say. But this research you're being paid to do is being paid for by someone or by some company or by some group or, or by some grant that the Politics of the moment are then going to say, well, we got you this grant, so you can hang around in your lab with your white coat on and and go on CNN and tell everybody that you're a scientist, but by God, you're going to make sure you find this. And everybody says, oh, that no one would ever do that. I'm like, are you stupid or naive? Follow <laughs> the money. I get hard, people hard time me. Oh, well, you only go and speak to those ag corporations because they pay you and you tell them what they want to hear. I'm like, I just told you that I think the NCBA is a biggest ripoff and, you should, and it should be disbanded. I'm not a sellout. I, I speak with conviction about the things that I know based on my research and my experience and my knowledge. But the point is, I also know I work for other people's money. So if I am speaking at a chemical company I'm not going to get up there and spend 60 minutes on stage telling them all that chemicals, uh, the chemicals they make are, uh, you know, evil. I don't necessarily believe that anyhow, but I'm in a pretty good situation. I say what I think, and I understand that uh, I work for other people's money, but I have never let it get to where I can't say no to something. If you're a scientist you don't run your own business and you go to work for this thing and they tell you, here's what science we're going to work on. You're probably going to make sure that this is what you do. And that don't think for a second. And then the other part of it about being terrified. So follow the money. Yes. Everybody does what's in their economic best interest. Usually that's just econ 101. you do what's in your economic best interest, self-interest. And then the other part of it is the group thing. If 11 scientists say this, and you're the 12th, one out here, saying, no, you know what? I conducted a completely uh, different uh, battery of tests and experiments, and I found the absolute opposite of what you're saying. And then it becomes a political thing. And then it becomes, what are you? Some kind of a, you know, right-winger, you're a Nazi, you're this or that. So that's where then groupthink happens in the scientific community. Not to mention, if it makes money for you to perpetuate well, 11 scientists said this, only a lunatic would ever disagree with the findings. We at Pfizer know. We know what the good science is, so buy our stuff. And only a lunatic would disagree and ever think that Pfizer's medicine might somehow be have a side effect. I guess what I'm saying is it's the money, and it's also the human side of it, it's Humans are still just humans. They don't want to be cast away from the fire. They don't want to be not part of the group if they're unless they're they gonna be really, really gotta be really strong person to go against the group.
0: Yeah, I, I can definitely see that. And you know going back to your previous example of getting uh, middle school get bullied on a schoolyard, I was that kid. like I was the kid that I was the kid that wasn't I wasn't afraid to speak up when something wasn't right. Yep. Um, but I was also usually the one getting beat on. Um, I was usually one of the first ones to speak up in class, you know, when the teacher wanted an answer and, you know, I probably got beat on a bunch for that. So I kind of know what it's like to be the outcast and be the brunt of bullying or abuse. And maybe that's given me some pretty thick skin because I've never really, I've never really had that strong burning desire to bend my morals or bend how I feel about the world to comply with a larger group think to be a part of a group. I've always, I've always felt like I'll find my tribe instead of trying to compromise or change who I am to fit into someone else's. Does that make sense?
1: It makes sense completely. So that's what I'm just telling you. It takes a lot of balls and backbone to, to, to not uh just join in and the, the jeering and the and the ridiculing section. Go on. I mean, like I said, the playground, t- take the playground to Twitter. It's the same thing. I have people in ag, I have alleged ag uh personalities that uh ganged up on me and then what they go and get their toadies to then you know ridicule me, which I'm like, what you think typing some shit on Twitter, like <laughs> it's like like you know what? You wouldn't say that if I was standing here. Oh, no, we're fighting. I'm like, I'm just telling you that if I was standing there face to face, you wouldn't say that. Uh, keyboard warrior, you can do that. So I see it all the time. But again, I we can go back to all this whole thing. Take the ag example of GMOs. Take the ag example of insecticide like DDT. Take the ag example of climate crisis. When you so much as question it, then nobody wants to go against the grain. And then when you figure there's it's multiple things being multiple things, Brian, being in Cactus, Okay. You've got an entire industry. Let's just go with the climate crisis. You've got a whole bunch of people that are going to make a bunch of money. And I mean, boat loads of money, whether it's getting a contract from the government for, you know, this, this new thing, uh, stimulus, stimulus, was it? The green new deal or whatever the hell they call it the inflation reduction act, which a bunch of it is just ladled, ladled and ladled and ladled on top of it, more ladles full of, money, which is my money and your money, being thrown at green energy. If you're going to make billions of money with solar farm development and wind power and all this kind of thing, you're all for it. And then, of course, you make sure you find some scientists that say, oh, God, climate crisis. And the the claims they make have become increasingly ludicrous, but it just shows that once you keep establishing the layer of bullshit, you can get more ludicrous on top of ludicrous we have now elected politicians, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez last year saying that we, we're really going to, we probably have 12 more years. Like earth is going to end in 12 years. They start making these out. I mean, it's, it's outlandish and it somehow isn't met with this outland, like the way an outlandish statement should be met with. And so you start hearing this again and again and again. If you're, if you're, financial incentive is to perpetuate this it becomes then oh let's come up with even more big and shock more fear more fear and so it's not it's not questioned it's not it's not derided as the outlandish statement that it is and then it becomes the new the new normal which is a thing we had to hear a lot about the last three years
0: normal is just a setting on a dryer anyway right And. It- what do you
1: think about it? Normals just just sitting on a dryer. And when people say it's not fair, I say fair is a place where they award blue ribbons to pigs and you buy cotton candy. Let's not ever talk about fair, fair as it pertains to anything because uh, fair is a place where they, they give blue ribbons to pigs.
0: I like that better than mine. I've always said life is not required to be fair, but I, I think I like yours better. So it, I know we're, uh, I know we're kind of, short on time today so let's circle back we keep saying
1: that we're going to talk for an hour good god <laughs> how, how how much more time do you think these people want to hear from damien mason
0: i don't know they'll probably listen almost every minute that we record um so let's let's talk about you know we're talking about following the money and inflation reduction act pumping i don't know what another 1.8 trillion dollar spending bill that they just passed last week
1: those are two separate things 1.7 1.8 trillion was just new spending it was all just completely full of pork the inflation reduction act was about a trillion before that just a few months ago of which i think a little more than half of it was all tied to green new deal uh again solar and wind and all sorts of all manner of just giveaway and then you know the, the general motors um, uh, general motors got a whole bunch of uh, incentive out of it so it's government motors once again so um it's it's tragic to be honest with you because it creates it creates outcomes that are not anywhere close to economically incentive and in, economically uh justified i should say they are justified because you're you're chasing the money but it was not it was not from a it was not from a organic reason it was from a government tossing money at it so then it becomes oh i can go and buy an electric car now because i get fifteen thousand dollars of tax credit for doing so well would you have ever bought a electric car before no you even want an electric car well no but i'm getting 50 you know so it becomes distortions if you will
0: well at government subsidies are distortions in every market that they're in including crop subsidies
1: there's no question you try and explain to people that that uh, not enough old people uh, or not enough people have a historical uh perspective period and then take our own business uh there was a thing just until 20 years ago, not even less than 20 years ago called LDP. my brother works for U.S Department of Agriculture I said. I said, you know, I bought my first farm in the year 2000. I said, what the hell is this LDP? Says loan deficiency people. I said, so what's it mean? He's like, well, uh, there's a, we're giving you a loan because uh, there's deficiencies in the crop market. I said, so what's that mean? Like, well, if corn is selling for a uh, $1.86, we're going to give you the difference between $1.86 and $2.22. I said, what's that mean? He's like, well, we think, you know, to be profitable, you mean to be 2 I said, oh, so it's a price floor. It's a price floor. It's it's just giving money away. It's a price floor. Anybody that's taken economics, uh, at least by the second or third class uh, or or 200 level, price floors and price ceilings do not work. They attempt to circumvent. They work in that they give away a bunch of money or create distortions, but they don't work in the true economic sense because there's attempts at circumventing the laws of supply and demand simply okay and so minimum wage you you tell people all right let's talk about minimum wage minimum wage or loan deficiency payment or uh rent control in new york city those would be three things that are all price floors or price ceilings correct so what they're saying is you can never pay more than this you can never pay less than this all right minimum wage law Uh, I always get my liberal friends worked up when I say, hey, you guys want a minimum wage increase? Yes, it needs to be $15. I said, hell, you know what? That doesn't seem generous enough. If we're going to just arbitrarily pick a number, which is what minimum wage does, because it's not tied to true forces of supply and demand. I said, if $15, what would, and they said, it just would feel good because these poor people. I said, hey, if $15 makes you feel good, let's feel 10 times better. Let's make minimum wage $150 an hour huh? Well, it's 10 times as much. It'll make you feel 10 times better. Well, you're being ridiculous. And and so are you. Because if the marketplace has determined, I own a dry cleaners and I start offering $5 an hour, nobody will show up and press my shirts. I offer $7, nobody will show up. And finally at 8.50, I get somebody will come in there and press the shirts. By God, I just found what the marketplace. (laughs) what the marketplace demand is. It's, that's how the marketplace should work to arbitrarily just come up with some minimum wage law. And I said, so if you're going to make 15 bucks, let's do 10 times 150. Well, then what would happen? I said, well, then Damien, instead of charging $8,000 to go out and do a speech, I'm going to charge 100 times more than that because I have to, because the point is, if you're telling me that everything's going to be 100 100 times more, 100 times better, I'm going to charge 100 times more also. So I'm going to just... And you use that example, like, well, no. I said, okay, so you think that we should bring up those people, but nothing else is going to go up from there. Because now the dry cleaner is going to say, well, wait a minute. At 15 bucks, when I was, I had somebody that was doing it for eight bucks. Ah, crap. I'm going to have to charge twice as much for everything that that person touches. So they don't understand that price floors. Um is what a minimum wage is. And that's what a loan deficiency payment did. It said, you'll never make less than, call it you know $2 and a quarter for a bushel of corn. And I don't know the exact numbers. I'm pretty close going back historically on ag economics. And so I'm sure someone right now that was in all the LDP programs in Iowa is going to say, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. It was $2 and 21. Okay, whatever the number is, it was a price floor. It's very similar. It's, it, it, it's an exact comparison to minimum wage in that it's attempting to circumvent what the real cost I'm sorry, the real price in the market uh, for something would be. A price ceiling would be like the rent controls in New York City. They say, you know what? Rent's too high, so you can't ever charge, you can't charge more than $1,000 a month for this apartment or whatever it should be. $2,000 a month for this apartment. And the reality is someone would pay $4,000. And so what happens? All sorts of things happen. Uh you- <laughs> You start you start sleeping with the the landlord. Uh you know, you, you pay pay under the table, you do all kinds of things to circumvent the distortion of a price ceiling.
0: Yeah, for sure. And this commodity programs like they exert a similar pressure on land price. Does
1: well, that- you could argue that they prop it up. Yeah. Uh, my farm ground in Indiana that I own has, is worth a lot of money because uh, I can rent it. Uh, in this case, I rent my farm ground to a dairy operation. He
0: has alfalfa and corn on my
1: fields that he then feeds to his cattle.
0: Okay, you can rent that out, but here's the question: and you know we're talking about business and economics and agriculture. It's I would I'm going to take the standpoint and the viewpoint that there's almost nowhere you can go in this country and buy land and make it cash flow with any sort of agriculture operation
1: that's probably true and i think that's been that way smile i'm taking a picture of you and i for social media while we're doing this dear listener i'm uh i've heard that and I will say that I have been hearing that since sitting at the dinner table sometime in the 70s. So to pretend that that is a new phenomenon would be uh, inaccurate and also historically unastute. It's been that way for a long, long time. So, um, and, and, and you know what? That is news to a lot of people. Friend of mine, Purdue roommate, year or two ago, uh, before this most recent run up in farmland values. Said something, but I said, "Hey, there's a chunk of ground." I said, "I'm I'm okay, but I might be half." Would you want to go halvesies? And then he he said, "Yeah, now if I put down like five percent, then will that flow?" And I said, "Well, first off, you can't put down five percent on farm ground. You got to put down like thirty-five percent, huh?" I said, "This is not like a house in the suburbs that you're going to live in with your kids." I mean, I said, "You're going to put down like thirty-five percent, and even then, you'll still have to probably kick in some each uh, month or each year because the cash rent isn't going to quite cover it." So you mean tell me the cash rent won't cover even 65%. I said, mm, probably not been that way for a long time, Brian. Um, I'm not sure where we you're going with that other than to say, if you thought that was something that's only happening right now, land prices are obviously very high. My part of the world uh, looks like we're up 30% just year over year. Um, I could.
0: Well, come- okay. so the direction to go with that is, so is, is land access. Mm-hmm. Okay. So. Demographically speaking, average age of farmers and ranchers in America now 60. 60, which has only gone up for the last 10 years, right? Forever. Forever, It's probably
1: been going up forever.
0: Up and up and up and up and up. People aren't living any longer. Land cost keeps going up and up and up. And it's so far detached from the value of production that. How how do we get the next generation involved in agriculture economically?
1: I'm not sure that it's detached. The words you just said were detached economically, or Coupled, detached from
0: decoupled. That the, the production value is decoupled from the purchase price, and
1: uh, we turn- not necess- not necessarily true. I tune into because my alma mater. I tune into Purdue. Uh, Department of Agricultural Economics puts out webinars. I try to watch them uh, to keep my head sharp about things that maybe I'm not as on. Uh, They were saying in their June webinar, and granted we're recording this in in, uh, December, um, so six months ago, they said this looks like the biggest numbers on net income that we have seen since the mid-late 70s, which was in I know you're you're out there in cow country and in grasslands, but my part of the world, where it's you know corn and soybeans predominantly, they compared to uh, this year, 2022, to the '70s, which were the golden era, right, for a while, one of one of our big super cycles. And so, when you said it's decoupled, it's not necessarily decoupled at all. 2022, um, we saw record farm income. Net farm income is at an absolute record up like 18 or 14% year over year. And last year was one of the fourth biggest uh, net farm incomes. Granted, we have inflation, but also uh, the farms made money. Um, So if farm ground is selling for a lot of money, and it's because farmers and ranchers made a bunch of money, farmers more than ranchers, I know, because beef wasn't quite as good. Um, So you'd have a hard time saying it's decoupled. And then if you're a pure investor right now, You'd say, okay, um stuff in, in my part of Indiana selling for twelve to fourteen thousand dollars an acre, but if it rents for 350, you can run the math. Let's see, 350 just for the fun of it, we'll take it uh on to fourteen thousand. Three $350 divided by fourteen thousand. It gives you a two and a half percent return if it's cash on cash. That's not counting some property taxes you're gonna pay on it. You'd say two and a half percent return. Who would invest their money on two and a half percent return? Well, right now you're getting negative 19 in the stock market your cds are probably about uh half a percent and then there's this idea that farmland has always been acceptable to make a low return but it gets it gives you a return every year and it also is something you can go out and touch you can feel it it's tangible and it supposedly has got upside now some of us that lived through the 70s, and more importantly, the 80s, know that farmland does not always go up. Um, I saw it go down by 60 to 75 percent, uh, 60 to 70 percent for sure uh, in the 1980s.
0: You think we're heading to see another one of those early 80s type corrections again in our in our agricultural land price as we move out of this, inf- as we move deeper into this era of inf- of hyperinflation that we're kind of seem to be getting into?
1: <clears throat> something made me uh, pause the other day. I filled up my Ford F-150, about 30 some gallons of gas. It was $3.13. Um, that, because most people don't even think and connect the dots between fuel, energy, and 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 everything agriculture, but they are, um, you know, attached at the hip in many regards. So the inflationary situation... I started saying two years ago that we were being lied to when they told us it was transitory. And I'm like, what does that even mean? <laughs> oh
0: yeah, <laughs> you don't print $1.5 trillion and call it fucking transitory inflation. That's no. so, but I
1: when I filled up with gas, I'm like, okay, these energy prices um have stabilized and come down a little bit. Um on land, I think we saw a big run. Agriculture people, as you know, hate to pay taxes and they love land because it's you know same reasoning touch it and feel it you can pass it on to your kids you can go out there and drive around on it you know ag people like land i own land and i you know i don't i wouldn't have to i i wouldn't have to i just i own it because i went back and bought it i didn't inherit it um i like owning my farm ground and i would own more farm ground but i wouldn't buy farm ground at these multiples um do i believe to your bigger point is there going to be a correction the last chunk of farm ground I bought, I, mean, I guess I did buy a little bit this year, but it was just more changing an arrangement with my sister. But we're up about 100% in four years. So you tell me uh, historically an asset class that has gone up a, say, single digit percentage each year. And, and I know there's going to be people say, what are you talking about? In the last 20 years, it's gone up 11 Okay, let's go further than that. Let's go back 60 years, okay? The era of modern agriculture. But from the time we invented the John Deere 4020 on, okay, let's call it the more modern era. So in the last 60 years, the asset class of farm ground has gone up, you know, mid single digits to high single digits probably. At best, it's gone up 7 to 10%, whatever. That's not 100% in four years. So does it, does it, would it be healthy for it to have a correction? Probably would, probably would. Do we need to see a washout? Do we need, do we need blood in the, in the blood in the streets out here in rural America? Well, God, I hope not. Um, You know, like I said, we saw from 1981 to about 83, 84, 80 to 83, 84. We did see a 50 to 65, 70% loss of value on farm ground and assets. The story I always tell people is, I'm not going to carry on about walking uphill to school in the snow and all that. I'm just going to tell you this. I know that in the eighties there were some agricultural assets that were so underwater, the bank wouldn't even repossess them. It was easier for them to not repossess the asset because it was worse for them to put it back on their books than to just let it go. That's a true story. Are we going to see that? I don't see that happening. Interest rates have doubled. That's the other thing, Brian. A lot of people get wrong and say, "Oh, interest went from three percent to six percent. Went up three percent." No, it, it went helped. up. It went up one hundred percent. It went up one hundred percent because going from three to six is a doubling. It, it, it the rate is six percent, but it didn't go up three percent. Went up one hundred percent. So when you say, "Okay," when you double the cost of something, if I doubled the cost of a, my F one fifty, if I doubled the cost of a this pin it should have an impact on demand, right? I doubled the price of it, so borrowed money, if you look at it as the product that it is, meaning it's it's a product, if I doubled the cost of borrowed money, there should be less demand for it, which means after these cash buyers get through their their uh you know their mattresses and what they've been sitting on cash, you would think that there could be i i personally and everybody's like, oh, well, you're not the real estate expert. Well, I've called a bunch of them before. I called a 30% deduct from the last high, and I was almost to the penny right from 2011, 12, 13. I said, we're going to go down about 25 to 30%. We need to. I could see that. I could see a 25 to 30% deduct, and I could see it being almost healthy to do so. First off, borrowed money is going to be one of the reasons. Uh, if other asset classes begin uh, giving a return, um when my neighbors out here in suburban Phoenix start asking me about farm ground, it tells me that we're at a peak. <laughs> when, when the, when the doctors in Scottsdale, Arizona want to know why, whether they should buy farm ground, I'm like, Oh no, that's time to sell. Um, so what if we did go back 25%? We're talking about giving back one year's appreciation in my part of the world in, in the corn belt, we're up about 30%. So let's say we did a deduct of 30% and we did that in the next two years. That means we'd take two years to give away what we went up in one year. Would that be the end of the world? Well, only if you were 100% leveraged at the highest price when you bought it all. And most farm owners aren't most farm owners usually accumulate as they go along and have a pretty good uh, equity position.
0: Okay. Uh, So where do we go from here? So, Moving, moving forward in the future, like I think it's going to be less affordable for individuals to be able to afford to purchase land to start an agricultural operation. And because of, you know, how high land prices are, we're seeing more, you know, let's say corporate ownership or group ownership or absentee ownership of these farming and ranching operations. And the big danger that happens to me is, you know, we talked earlier about how Almost every corporation is a for-profit corporation. They're like, they're designed to return profit to their shareholders. And that's what they do at expense of everything else, animals, people, and environment. So as land gets too expensive for individuals to afford, we get more and more corporate and detached ownership from our agricultural lands. And before we started recording, Damien, um, you asked me about my ranch, and I, you know, through it and just for the listeners that weren't here haven't heard it before so about two-thirds of the ranch is belongs to my family partnership and i pay a lease on and i own the other third and for me this is less of a problem but going as we would move forward into the future i have the benefit of being ownership interest Mm -hmm and management and labor. Mm -hmm. So if there's something wrong on the ranch, I have to look at it through the lens of being all three of those people from management, from labor, and from ownership. Management is, can we do it? Ownership is, does this fit into my long-term vision of it? And labor is the guy actually going out and doing the work. So if I want to accomplish an overall larger ecological goal over a long term, I'm not beholden to shareholders return a profit every year. I don't have to justify my my investments in infrastructure or my investments in, in maintenance to anybody else but me. And it, it puts me in a position to where you know, I I have to take care of the land and I have to pass it on. It has to, you know, I I at least got to try to improve it, make it a little bit better while i'm here before i pass it on and i I really wonder if that how to recreate that incentive structure that long-term incentive structure to make things better and to improve land when we have corporate ownership or, or group ownership that's detached
1: if you're asking me do i have an answer i don't i went back and bought farm property I don't have to own farms. It's one of the things I do. I did it because I am a farm kid and I like, I like the farm. Um, I don't operate it. I rent it out. I have operated. And obviously I grew up doing it. I did make hay for a while on part of my property, that picture behind my shoulder right there was some of our curvy uh, pasture fields I made in the hay fields. Um, if it was owned by a corporation, would it, would it, Would the person from the corporation go out and walk their dogs and see a tile blow out like I do, and then take a picture of it and then call the excavator and say, hey, in the next couple months, can you get a guy out here? We got to fix some tile. Uh, If it was owned by XYZ Corporation, would they walk through the woods lovingly and look at the trees and talk about timber management? I don't know. Here's the reality. Georgia Pacific is in the timber management business. They are a corporation. They're pretty damn good at timber management. Warehouser is a timber management company. I guess my point is to pretend that the it would be the collapse of our food system is probably catastrophically uh predictively wrong. Um to to say that there wouldn't be maybe much love uh or attachment, that's certainly true. Um You know, If I own that dry cleaners that I just talked about uh, that's looking for an employee at eight bucks an hour, I'm going to care a lot more. I'm going to be in there a little earlier, stay a little later than if I just work for a chain of uh, dry cleaners. That's probably true. Um, We get nostalgic about the whole thing about could somebody else do this? Could the young person do this? That's a real thing, but it's not new the cost of entry for commodity production has been prohibitive for a long time. Let's do this rather than talking about, cause we do a thing where we like compare it to history and we're usually doing it with rose colored lenses. Let's do it with anything else. I want to produce corn and soybeans. Okay. They're commodities. What's commodity production favor scale economies of scale size size You'd say, "All right, it's going to be hard to do, but you know what? Your dad does corn and soybeans, and if you maybe get educated, work in town, have a job, and also farm on the side, you keep maybe you could grow and all that." Okay, fine. What if I then said, "Hey, I want to produce asphalt shingles." What? Yeah, I want to produce asphalt shingles. Okay, it's a commodity. Uh, Owens Corning uh, is is a real big manufacturer of them. Um, that's where the well. Why the hell would you think that you have this even entitlement to be able to produce asphalt shingles as a guy out here in rural Indiana? Don't you know that Owens Corning and three other companies make like all the asphalt shingles in the country? And then you'd say, all right, are your asphalt shingles working on your house? Yeah. Is it keeping the rain out? Yeah. Did you overpay for those asphalt shingles? No, I went to the Home Depot, and they had four different brands there, and I bought this one. Okay. And I'm only giving that illustration because, again, most people in ag never think of it from that perspective. If you grow corn and soybeans and wheat, you are a commodity producer, just like the company that makes asphalt shingles or coal uh, or or aluminum cans or aluminum siding or anything, copper pipe, anything that is a commodity. So to say that somehow I want to just embark upon this. If I got out of college and I had my agricultural economics degree and I'm 23 years old and I've got zero money, you know what? I want to go and farm. You're like, ah, it's so sad. That kid can't go and farm. He's got zero money, no inheritance. His parents aren't farming. He just wants to farm. He can't. That is so sad. What if he said, hey, I just graduated. I've got my industrial manufacturing degree. I'm 23. I have zero money. I want to make asphalt shingles and copper pipe. You'd be like, you dumb son of a bitch. (laughs) It's like three big, huge manufacturers of that stuff globally. You're not going to compete against them. You know what? The margins are very low. It's huge capital, cost of entry, et cetera, et cetera. So I only give this illustration that nobody in our industry ever thinks of, Brian, that there's only a few commodity production businesses that you can get into as a young person with limited finance and ag is one of them okay you've you've never thought of it that way now have you
0: no i really haven't (laughs) i i I really haven't i've just i kind of look at the the agricultural commodity system and see some problems with it and i know that there's i know that it's difficult to fight and you don't win their game by playing it you have to play a different game
1: well, that's the other thing. Okay, and and again, I, I, I'm an ag guy. So I'm not saying this be mean. I'm telling our ag people, think from a different perspective. I've had to hear this my whole life. I'm 53 years old. I've had to hear it my whole life. I didn't go back and farm. There was no farm for me to go to. I'm one of nine kids. I'm the youngest of nine kids. There's no inheritance. We didn't barely have anything to begin with. My dad was a, basically a sharecropper. So there's like... uh. 90, 85 tillable acres, um, some woods, some rough ground, and a very labor-intensive mid-sized dairy facility. There was not enough money for my parents, not alone my brother who decided to go and farm. So this thing of, oh, well, Damien wanted to go and farm after college, and he just couldn't. How tragic. That's just so sad. We need to change this whole thing. I'm like, that's not true. There's USDA has all kinds of beginning farmer programs. Again, does the USDA have a beginning asphalt shingle manufacturing program where I can be a penniless 22 year old kid and go into their office and they'll say, now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to give you zero interest money. You go over there and you start a little factory and you start making up asphalt shingles and you compete against Owen corn, Owen's corning. Again, I'm not being anti-ag. I'm giving comparative perspective. Um, Here's where you can make out. And it's more more, uh, of an option now than it has ever been. This idea that they want to go and farm, commodity production has always, 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 from an agricultural economics history, gotten back to where the revenue equals the cost of production, period. It's a break-even endeavor. That's why we have the USDA. Uh, Essentially, uh, if you have any... Uh, you know, historical perspective. We've had lots of years where you produce the crops at break even, and you, your your net profit was your USDA payments. That's that's been the case many many years over the last fifty years that I've been paying attention. Um, but more than ever, you're talking about that young person that wants to get into this business. Um, and and I, again, I would say this to please take this the right way. There's lots of young people that get in on grandpa's assets you i'm not being mean but based on your story you i i didn't get into production ag because of i had no assets given to me so let's not pretend that this is the only thing what if you said i want to um i want to start uh a plumbing contractor business well you're Dad and mom don't have a plumbing contractor business. You're going to start with you and a bucket of tools, and then you're going to buy a truck, and then you're going to buy a second truck, and you're going to hire another guy, et cetera, et cetera. You say, well, you can't do that in ag. Well, actually, you can. Now more than ever, we have a consumer base that is more accustomed and comfortable buying direct from the farm than has ever been. And I'm not talking about you have to set up a roadside stand. We have internet commerce for food that is more acceptable now than it has ever been. The pandemic made it more so. It was already pretty damn popular and acceptable. Starting with this whole shutdown, you can go on your website and order, boom, whatever. So the answer is niche. And if you'll just, and I hope that my ag people understand my point there. If you'll compare it to, I want to get into manufacturing asphalt shingles, I want to get into making commodity-grade corn and soybeans, now it's a more like comparison. Nobody in the right mind would say, yeah, you make, make shingles. Well, it's the same thing. But you know what? What if I say, I'm going to start a company and I manufacture this niche type of environmentally friendly, very ecologically oriented, regenerative, naturally produced roofing system. And I'm going to only sell it uh, online to people that are trying to live off the grid in uh, in an uh, ecologically friendly way. Oh, you mean you have a niche. You have a product that Owens Corning doesn't even want to fool with. Their factories don't even know how to make that stuff. That's the same thing with ag. Now, all of a sudden, you've got a consumer base and we see it. And we see also to some point, Brian, you know, grass-fed Small brand was uh, a niche since you're in a beef business. And then like Nyman Ranch said, yeah, well, let's go ahead and do the same thing. And we'll just brand it that way through all the Whole Foods 4,200 stores. Oh, now that niche became almost commodity. Well, that's what happens. Eventually, when niches get too big and too profitable, then they become commoditized. Profits go down because all the big manufacturers, all the big retailers know how to do is sell stuff cheaper. And so if you want to be in ag production, you have to be in a niche, there's no question, or you have to come into it with some sort of uh, capital in your background.
0: Yep, yeah. and, and finding that niche, I think, is, you know, it can be your unfair advantage. It can be, It can be what makes your business work. But back to my point, like trying to get into the conventional commodity game with corn, soybeans, cotton, wheat, whatever, that that's not that's not really a, a viable economic prospect. I don't feel, but getting into a niche like growing sunflowers, growing cover crops, growing all natural pasture finished grass fed beef, you know these are niches that people need to think about starting to explore. That can be done on a much smaller acreage to generate, you know, a, an adequate living versus the the almost non-existent margins in the commodity business so
1: when and, and yeah and and i again i'm as pro-agriculture as any human you'll ever meet i also am pro-business and i understand business um again more of like the left-leaning media loves to cover this It ha- they rolled out they trotted out when there's not covert or climate crisis uh, uh paranoia and fear to push then they had to roll out this one and, and you'll see these stories pretty regularly NPR, i think it was about four years ago Go and profile this nice old man and woman. I don't know if they're nice or not, but they're old. And they're in Wisconsin. They're 80 years old. And they got 36 stall cows in a tie stall barn. And I saw the pictures. And of course, the cows are just coated with shit because it's, it's it's an antiquated farming operation, an antiquated milking operation. The cows are not being well cared for. They're in tie stalls, for God's sakes. So all the animal do-gooders sort of forgot that they're supposed to be against this because uh, at modern dairy operations, they've got hoof trimmers. They've got foot hoof baths where they go through to make sure they don't get hairy warts. They've got a nutritionist on staff. They have a veterinarian on staff. They have air movement systems. They have fresh water every hundred feet. Amazing. But the NPR story showed these dirty cows and this tie stall barn in the basement of a barn that was built in the probably late 1800s, early 1900s. And they talked about how awful it was that Mr. and Mrs. Farmer in central Wisconsin couldn't make it because big farming, big corporate agriculture was putting them out of business. they have been milking 36 cows there, Since the 1950s, gosh darn it. And that's terrible. They can't make it. If you are still doing things the way you did in 1950, you should be out of business, period. And and so this whole story is that, oh, they can't make it being a small farmer. Well, maybe they could make it as a small farmer if A, they took better care of their cows, B, updated facilities just a little bit, spent some money since 1960 till today. If you don't upgrade your facilities for 60 years, you might have a problem. And then more importantly, find a niche. They could have upgraded facilities, take better care of the cows. Uh, spend a little money on improvements along the way and then decided, hey, you know what? There's probably not a lot of room for us. We're not as efficient. We don't make as much milk per cow. We got all kinds of other issues. Let's just do this. Let's make it so that we're selling raw milk uh, or, or uh, uh, unhomogenized, straight from the farm, bottled in glass milk, whatever. And people say, oh, Damon, you know, that sounds easy for you. What about? I'm tired of the excuses. The point is, um, I'm from Indiana. We used to manufacture like 100 different brands of automobiles at the turn of the century in the state of Indiana. <laughs> okay. Um, the Stutz car company don't exist anymore. It's not because of somebody being evil. It just is called evolution.
0: Not everybody gets to make it, I suppose. And not every well, idea is good.
1: Well, um, I started out, as I told you, when you asked me for my elevator speech, and I told you that I don't like to talk on elevators, that was a political comedian when I quit corporate America. If I had failed, do you think there would just be this whole outpouring of emotion and, oh, poor Damien, he tried to make it in political comedy. Maybe we need more USDA programs for young, budding political comedians. Nope. It was sink or swim. And so that's the way it is with a lot of businesses, and so I'm I'm being very frank. And also, I again I'm an ag guy. This idea that that you can't make it as a young farmer is not necessarily true. But why is it that we have this thing that we that they that there should that that should be a path to entry without any struggle or you know you, no failure rate? Nobody thought that about me when I was 25. That stupid idiot wouldn't quit a good corporate job to try and be a political comedian. Now I'll tell you the other part about keeping up, modernizing, evolving. My political comedy act, Brian, was very unique. It was very special. I dressed up as Bill Clinton because Bill Clinton was the president of the United States. So my political comedy act involved me dressing up as Bill Clinton with makeup and wig and hair and all that stuff and a suit. And I did a political comedy act in the persona of Bill Clinton. So here it is the year 2022. Huh?
0: He was such an easy target.
1: Yeah. So... Here to the year 2022. Bill Clinton has not been in office since the year 2000. What if I told you, Damien Porter? What if NPR came out and did a story and said, "Here's this poor man. He's been a he's been a political comedian since 1994, and big com- big corporate comedians are putting him out of business. Here's poor Damien. He still delivers the same act." That he did in 1994 when he quit corporate America, where he dressed up as Bill Clinton and gets up and does some yucks about Monica Lewinsky or Hillary's calves or Newt Gingrich. You'd say, you stupid son of a bitch. Nobody wants to hear that. That's 30-year-old comedy, for God's sakes. You need to get with it. But we never do that in agriculture now, do we?
0: I mean, that's a good point. Um, And I'm struggling to draw a parallel, though.
1: I just paralleled it for you. I told you about the two old people in Wisconsin that NPR told us we're all supposed to cry about and create a GoFundMe. They created a GoFundMe account. Their kid created a GoFundMe account, said to help out grandma and grandpa out there still in their 36 cow tie stall barn. Nobody creates a GoFundMe account for a, uh antiquated Bill Clinton impersonator. I adjusted, I evolved, and became the next thing. They should, too.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I get that. I was I was hung up on, like, thinking about commodity corn and soybeans because— I don't know why. That's just where my brain usually goes back to is, is trying to reconcile that.
1: I already gave that one to you also. I compared it to Owens Cording in the in the manufacturing of asphalt shingles. Commodity production. Okay.
0: Okay. I think we got it. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, is there anything left we need to cover today?
1: I don't know. Are we still getting along?
0: Of course. Yeah. I get along with almost everybody. I mean... Yeah. I get along. I with, don't. I don't. Get along with a lot of people for two hours.
1: <laughs> I get. I don't. I don't get along with uh, everybody, but that's okay. Um, I've. I guess. I. I get people in ag. I had to block somebody a couple months ago, that just it was the same bullshit I heard when I was a child at Baxter's restaurant where the farmers hung out in Huntington, Indiana. I see so-and-so down there, the Big Farmer, going to put us out of business. I've had to hear this forever. I retaliate against it, but I do so with economic comparisons, real-world examples, and then I still have to hear, well, it isn't the same thing. So if you're still hung up on that, I can't I can't help you. But we've really just talked, you know, you you began this whole thing, and we've done everything from the, the the evolution of this industry to uh, the economics of this industry. And the point is, the economics right now are amazing. We had record farm income in 2022. Everybody uh, is making money in ag, except I'm, my understanding is uh, tree nuts, uh, tree fruits uh, struggle a little bit. A few livestock uh, sectors struggled a little, especially crop. But in general, it's never always good for everybody. And also, um, the the niche thing that we've just discussed, you could earn a living in niche agriculture more easily today than you could have at any other time in American agriculture. Um, you've got to be a bit more of a marketer. You got to be a bit more of a promoter. That's it. Commodity production favors size
0: and scale, and it always has. And I think COVID has really helped a lot of small producers, a lot of diversified producers, niche producers, find their find their markets and find their consumers.
1: Yeah. And and like I said, it's more acceptable and accepted than it's really ever been. So that's that's a bonus for for most everybody. So here's the biggie. I appreciate you having me on here. I'm not sure we got to everything that was on your uh, list, but I think we got through a bunch of things that weren't on your list. So there you go, my man.
0: I, I very rarely get through everything on a list. <laughs> and that's that's perfectly okay. My listeners, are, they're probably used to it by now. So close us out. Let us know where we can find you on the internet and how to get a hold of you. And what And what was your podcast again? The
1: Business of Agriculture is the podcast, The Business of Agriculture. My name is Damian Mason. You can go to Damian Mason, D A M I A N, just type in whatever search engine you use, Damian Mason agriculture and I'll come up. My website damianmason.com. I'm all over social media, particularly Facebook, LinkedIn and Twitter. I do some stuff on Instagram, although I'm not sure that uh, I'm not sure that's my favorite. And uh, I do put out my podcast every week. And then also you can check out the the work we're doing over at Extreme Ag. Just type in ExtremeAg.farm. No E on the front of it. ExtremeAg.farm. So
0: we're all over the place. All right. Sounds great. And um, I guess with that, we'll uh, we'll let you all go. Y'all have a great week. Thanks, Damien. Thanks.